today the sermon comes again from Matthew chapter 6, and we hope that you'll join us in looking at the words of Jesus in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Our current sermon series is called Christian Counterculture because what our Lord does in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is cast a vision for his followers of a way of life, a kingdom-centered, God-glorifying way of life that is counter to the prevailing cultural values that those first disciples encountered as they lived and moved in the world, and counter to the culture that we live in as well. We're going to begin with the uh, 19th verse of Matthew chapter 6 and some words that we heard last Sunday. Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. If you were with us last Sunday, you heard those words read and expounded. Jesus is going to continue to talk to us about this very practical, relevant subject of money, finances. Um, I should say that if you've never worried about money, then the message today and the text we're going to hear read now is probably not for you. But you might want to listen anyway so that you can pass along Jesus' advice to the 99% of the people you know who have worried about money, worried maybe that there wouldn't be enough paycheck left at the end of the month, worried that the old car wasn't going to make it much longer, and what on earth are we going to do for transportation when it does give up the ghost, worried that there's not going to be a cost of living increase this year, worried that there's not going to be enough orders coming into the shop. Jesus has a cure for worry. He's going to give us some very helpful counsel on uh, how to view our lives as in the Father's hands, and therefore um, no need to worry. We pick up our reading at verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon, in all his splendor, was, not, was uh, dressed like was not dressed like one of these. If, what, if, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which are here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O ye, you of little faith? 
So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I heard about a guy who used to worry a lot, but has now hired somebody to do all of his worrying for him. And a friend said, you hired somebody to do your worrying for you. How much do you have to pay him? The guy said, $500 a week. $500 a week? How, how are you going to afford that? The man said, that's his worry. <laughs> uh, I, I wish it were that simple. Well, in a sense it is. Our Lord gives us some very practical counsel on worry, a prescription for, a cure for worry that works and that anybody can afford. And it comes in the form, in these paragraphs that we just heard read, of a couple of rhetorical questions, a couple of word pictures, a common sense observation or proverb, and then a direct admonition. Listen for those different types of speech on our Lord's part as his cure for worry, beginning with the two rhetorical questions. Verse 25, is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Or isn't life more than food and isn't uh, it more than clothes? Um, yeah, question worth pondering. Some of you who are a little older, and I'll try not to make eye contact with anybody in particular here, uh, may remember this incident from the golden years of radio drama. There's a, a, an incident in which Jack Benny, that notorious tightwad, is uh, accosted by a robber who says, your money or your life. And then there's a long silence in which we are supposed to picture Jack Benny thinking about it. Your money or your life. Well, of course, of course life is worth more than money and what it could buy. And so Jesus invites us to ask this question when we are prone to worry. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothes? And then there's another rhetorical question in verse 27. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Or another way of putting it is, what good does worry do? You can't lengthen your life by worrying, although you can shorten it by worrying. Stomach ulcers, uh, coronary thrombosis, uh, all, all kinds of... Um, Issues like shingles and nervous conditions and sleep deprivation, these are worries fruit. Uh, Death was on his way to uh, a a city, and a man saw him and stopped him and and said, what are you doing? And and Death said, I'm going to that city 
to kill 10,000 people today. Well, it's horrible, said the man. And that said, well, that's the way it is. That's what I do. So the man spent the rest of the day trying to warn as many people as he could reach about death's plans. And at the end of the day, he saw death again and said, you told me that you were going to kill 10,000 people, but 70,000 died today. And death said, I did kill just 10,000 people. Worry and fear killed the rest. Worry can shorten your life, but it can't lengthen your life. And so Jesus invites us to ponder this rhetorical question. What good does worry do? Why do you worry? You can't lengthen your life by worry. And it wouldn't surprise me if right about now um, somebody were thinking, well, preacher, you're stating the obvious here. I already know that worry doesn't do any good. I already know that I shouldn't worry. But that doesn't tell me how to stop worrying. Which, if that's what you're thinking, is a, is a fair uh, observation. Preachers do sometimes forget to address the yes, but how question. We can diagnose problems, but not give a, a cure. We can talk about the sickness without offering the prescription. But I think Jesus would say that this is part of the cure for worry, knowing that worry is pointless. Worry is wrong thinking, and the antidote is right thinking. You get over worry not by taking some miracle pill, but by rewiring your brain, by training the habits of the mind to think correctly. And so he poses these rhetorical questions to get us thinking right. Isn't life more than food? Why do you worry? It doesn't do any good, does it? And then he gives us a couple of word pictures. The first one is the birds. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, but your heavenly Father feeds them. If he takes care of them, won't he take care of you who matter more to him? You're more valuable than the birds. If God provides for them who have no system for harvesting and storing, won't he take care of you, O oh, you of little faith? Well, as with the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, it's just as important to know what Jesus is not saying as it is to know what he is saying. He is not giving us this word picture about the birds to encourage passivity or laziness. Yes, his heavenly Father and ours provides for the birds, but he doesn't drop the food into their nests. Birds work hard for the food that they get. In Chinua Achebe's novel, Things Fall Apart, there is a, a lazy farmer named Yunoka. And Yunoka consults with the village priestess to find out why he's so poor. He says, I sacrifice to the god of the earth. I offer chickens to the god of yams, he complains, but she cuts him off. Hold your peace, she screams. You have offended neither the gods nor your fathers. 
When a man is at peace with the gods and his ancestors, his harvest will be good or bad according to the strength of his arm. You, Eunoka, are known in all the clan for the weakness of your machete and your hoe. When your neighbors go out with their axe to cut down virgin forest, you sow your yams on exhausted farms that take no labor to clear. They cross seven rivers to make their farms. You stay at home and offer sacrifices to a reluctant soil. Go home and work like a man. <laughs> well, in Jesus' version, when you work as hard as the birds do, then you may trust that God will take care of you. And if you don't have a job to earn income, your full-time job is to find a job. In first century Corinth, there were some needy Christians who were needy because they weren't working. And when Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians, giving them counsel on this and other matters, he didn't remind them of the servant uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and say, oh, you poor needy brothers of mine, just remember what Jesus said, that uh, God will take care of you as he takes care of the birds. No, Paul said, if you won't work, I guess you won't eat. There's different texts for different people in different situations. But, birds don't get ulcers. Birds don't worry. Birds whistle while they work, and so can we, according to Jesus' first word picture. His second word picture is, look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't labor, they don't spin, and yet not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God takes care of the plants that grow out in the field, which tomorrow may all be burned up, then won't he take care of you, O oh, you of little faith? Now, again, let's be careful that we understand what Jesus is not saying while we are understanding what he is saying. He says that God will supply all of our needs. He doesn't say that God will supply all of our wants. He talks about food and clothing, not Ferraris and computers. <laughs> if you're worried about life's necessities, this is the text for you. If you're worried about life's niceties, a snazzier car, a more exciting vacation, a faster computer or cell phone, a bigger screen television, a tailored suit, then I think Jesus would direct you to a different text. I think he might say, you need to read what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6, 8. If we have food and clothing, with that we'll be content. And then the next line, one I cited last week, is people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires. Now, I'm preaching to myself here. I, uh, my head turns when I see a Mustang convertible go whizzing past me. Yeah. Or even a, a more modest vehicle. A few years ago, we bought a Honda Odyssey from a friend here in the congregation who gave us a really good price on it. And um, it served us well. And now um, 
John and Kirsten are using it. And it's the only time in my life I have owned a top-of-the-line vehicle. It's the Honda Odyssey Touring model. And I discovered when we got this car that by holding down the um, unlock button a little bit longer, I can open all the windows on a hot day and let it air out. And I discovered that the car recognizes the difference between my fob and Jennifer's so that when I unlock the car, the driver's seat goes into the position that I set it at. And I can make the hatch open with a press of a... Now, maybe this is no big deal to many of you, but I never knew cars did that stuff. <laughs> and, you know, it is really, really easy to get used to that kind of stuff and begin to view yesterday's luxuries as today's necessities. And, and we want to be aware of this because Jesus does not promise that he will give us the kind of cell phone that the skit guys advertised or the top of the lion vehicle or anything else. Not that there's anything wrong with any of those in and of themselves, but Jesus promises here that our Father will take care of our necessities. Food and clothing. With that, we can be content. And we ought not, even when it comes to the necessities, behave like pagans. I don't know if you saw that in verse 32. After having said, don't run around saying, what are we going to wear? What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? He says, look, the, the pagans chase these things, worrying about them. The pagans are people who believe in many gods, most of whom are little better than human beings. They are capricious, unreliable, sensual, uh, uh, dishonest. Jesus says, you have a father. You have a father in heaven who cares for you. Once again, this is training your mind to think right thoughts. This is sound theology. Don't be put off by that word theology. There is nothing more practical than sound theology. Jesus' cure for worry includes remembering, believing that you have a Father, capital F, in heaven who will care for you, take care of you. Believe this, not just as part of the church's creed that you occasionally may be reminded of in a worship service, but this is experiential truth that you hold on to and live according to. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is how the text ends. So don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Having given us a couple of rhetorical questions and a couple of word pictures, Jesus now gives us this common sense observation or proverb. When I read this at our family dinner table a week or so ago, each day has enough trouble of its own, somebody said, isn't that the truth? Not long after, I read these lines in staff devotions on a Monday morning here at the church office. Each day has enough trouble of its own, and somebody said, Amen. 
We all know this. This is a common sense observation that Jesus wants us to reflect on. Mark Twain said that worry is the interest we pay on trouble before it comes. And the irony is, it often doesn't come at all. We worry about something that does not materialize, and so worry is a complete waste of mental energy that we could have spent on the task at hand. And there is always a task at hand. There's always something that you can do about today, even though there's little you can do about tomorrow. Are you worried about what your creditor is going to do tomorrow? Well, today, you can write a letter reaffirming that you intend to honor your obligations and asking your creditor to work with you on a, on a payment schedule. Are you worried about how you're going to make that big car insurance payment that's looming in a couple of weeks? Well, today, you could shop for more affordable transportation. You could consider selling one of the family vehicles. You can, you can ask your driver's age teenager to share insurance expenses. How will she afford it? That's her worry. <laughs> I've shared the story before of Mickey Rivers, the uh, outfielder for the Texas Rangers, who shared his philosophy of life. Ain't no sense in worrying about things you got control over, because if you got control over them, ain't no sense in worrying. And there ain't no sense worrying about things you got no control over, because if you ain't got no control over them, it ain't no sense worrying. Common sense. Well, listen now to Jesus' admonition. A more direct statement of what you should do. We've got a couple rhetorical questions. Isn't life more than food? Why do you worry? It doesn't do any good. A couple of word pictures. Look at the birds. Look at the lilies of the field. A proverb or common sense observation. Each day has enough trouble of its own, so don't worry about tomorrow. Let tomorrow worry about itself. Well, in verse 33, he just gives us a direct admonition. He says, this is what you're supposed to do. Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. What are all these things? Food and clothing. Not necessarily the Ferraris and the computers. If you put God's kingdom first, God's concerns, his cause in the world, and God's righteousness, you value supremely a right relationship with him. And right living, God will take care of your needs. Can't he be trusted to be at least as faithful as an earthly king who pays his troops while they're fighting for him? Do his bidding. Make his kingdom your priority, and he'll take care of you. Do you remember the order in the Lord's Prayer? Your name be hallowed, your kingdom come, your will be done before you ever get to give us this day our daily bread. God's kingdom, God's concern first. Well, again... Yes, but how? 
how do you make God's kingdom your priority? Well, the example I'm going to dwell on is not the only answer to that question, but since Jesus is talking about money, let's talk about money. How do you make his kingdom your priority? You could start by tithing. Right off the top, giving 10% of your income to the Lord's work. Is this a law for the, the Christian as it wasn't a law for the Old Testament believer? No. Does that mean that the Christian should give less than the Old Testament believer? No. But what if I can't tithe? Somebody says. I know I probably should. I, I've heard about it over the years in church and I, I've read what the Bible says about giving and I know I should, but I just I don't, I don't see how I can do it. Well, Randy Alcorn, who has, as some of you know, written about, a lot about this, has an answer to that question. Over the years, when somebody says to him, I, I probably should tithe, but I can't, he says, really? Do you mean to say that if your income was cut by 10%, you would die? <laughs> yeah, it might be hard, but that doesn't mean it's impossible if this is what God asks of you. But making God's kingdom our priority is not only about money. A familiar story by John Piper um, shows that this is a broader subject. Uh, years ago, Piper was speaking to a convention of young people, and he, he used what I'm going to read, and it has since been used probably thousands of times. Uh, preachers and authors and Maybe you've heard it from one of your pastors before, but it's worth repeating in this context. Piper starts by citing a story he read in Reader's Digest about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years previously when he was 59 and she was 51. And now, Piper says, they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler play softball, and collect shells. At first, when I read this, I thought it must be a joke, a spoof on the American dream. But it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life, before you give an account to your your creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells? That is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Over against that, Piper writes, I put my protest, don't Buy it. Don't waste your life. Jesus calls you to a life committed to the kingdom of God and a life of trust in your Father who will take care of your needs if you make His cause your cause. It doesn't necessarily mean that He's calling you to a life of radical simplicity. God leads some to forego 
uh, pleasures that others can legitimately enjoy. The Bible does not lay out one precise standard of living for every Christ follower. What's at stake is an attitude toward your possessions such that you're not possessed by them. Remember the story about the guy who hired somebody to do all of his worrying for him? <laughs> Got a better suggestion. Let your father do your worrying for you for free. He'll do a better job than anybody could. And underlying these paragraphs and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is this profound truth, this sound theology that we need to really hold on to. We have a Father. Let's talk to our Father. And let's pray. Almighty God and our gracious Heavenly Father, would you help us please by your Spirit to believe what we have heard from your Son. To really believe it. Not just nod in assent. But to go from this place of corporate worship out into the everyday world, the work world, the money world, really believing and trusting in what we have heard today. It's not easy sometimes because the culture is counter to the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount counter to the culture. There are many voices urging us to want more, want faster, want better, need, need, Help us, please. For the sake of Christ and His kingdom, but also for our own sakes, Lord, because we don't want to waste our lives. So we pray in Jesus' name and let all His people say, Amen.